Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. A couple of years ago on Epiphany Sunday, I imagined what it might be like if the Magi wise men from Persia arrived in Bethlehem in the 21st century, seeking to worship a Jewish baby. Epiphany means to appear, and the Magi seem to do exactly that, appear from out of nowhere, that, and they witness the star of the Christ child as it appeared in the sky, its light shining down on them and leading the way. And I set the scene like this. And I hope in setting this scene, I didn't cause any trouble in the Middle East. A child is born to a Jewish mother, a teenager, in the West Bank settlement of Bethlehem. It's an enclave of devoted Judaism surrounded by Palestinian Arabs and Russian immigrants. It is tense. It is dangerous. It is a forge of unrest. The baby's father, Yusef, works at a kosher food plant. The little family lives in a small efficiency apartment. And one day as the family sits down to eat dinner, there is a a commotion heard outside. Filling the narrow street in front of their house is a caravan of slick, black Range Rovers. Spilling from their doors is an entourage of sharply dressed Iranians. They wear fine, bright, dervish hats and dark, tailored suits. They are scrambling about with handcuffed briefcases attached to their wrists, straightening their ties as their bodyguards form a secure perimeter. Carefully, nervously, they come to the apartment door and knock. As Yusef slowly opens the door, a cricket bat in his hand, his wife and child looking over his shoulder, the Iranians fall on their faces to worship the child. Spilling their briefcases, they have diamonds and gold bars and crypto security certificates. Just let your imagination run wild. Now, what if something like that happened today? Well, it might cause World War III. Iranians and Jews, sons of the Islamic Revolution, kneeling down before a Jewish toddler, raining the precious gifts of Persia and ancient Babylon down on a poor Israeli family. Is that too hard to believe? It may seem so, but that's what happened in Matthew's Gospel. And I've always tried to imagine this scene in Matthew's gospel better than the version we are most familiar with, because the version we are most familiar with is not from Matthew chapter 2 at all. It is from this man, John Henry Hopkins, Jr. He is the one who wrote, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and it is a travesty of uncalculated measure. And speaking of measure, for the musicians, who writes anything in three-eighths time? 
was he looking at a tape measure when he wrote this song? We three kings of Orient are, stop right there, no, you are not. First, we don't know if there were three or 300, only that there was more than one. And they were not kings. They were astronomers with mystical inclinations. They weren't from the Orient. That would be China in ancient time. They were Magi, a distinct class belonging to Persia, modern-day Iran. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. I'll allow the traveling part. But they didn't follow the star per se. It appeared as an astronomical sign in the east, and then they headed west, only to have it reappear as they are directed toward Bethlehem, this time turning southwest and not east. And they arrive at a house to worship the Christ child, not the stable. No sheep, no shepherds, no manger, no hay, maybe no camels. They may have walked for all we know. Now that I have that annual tirade off my chest, let us proceed to imagining these magi differently. Not as camel-riding royalty, looking all the part of Lawrence of Arabia. Not as benevolent travelers from the realm of Genghis Khan. Not as luxury SUV-driving Iranians. Let's imagine them today as cowboys. Did you think this vest was just a prop? (laughs) Cowboys headed into the wild, wild west searching. When it comes to cowboy movies, when it comes to the western, the best of the lot have the heroes and the heroines in search of something. And without that search, there is no plot. Without the search, there is no motive. Without the search, there is no point to the story. Consider, if you would, a half dozen or so of the greatest westerns of all time. Shane, a reformed gunfighter who wants no more trouble. He is searching for peace. True Grit, little Maddie Rose will not rest until she brings her father's killer to justice, even though it means hiring a cantankerous drunk marshal named Rooster Cogburn. The outlaw Josie Wales, he isn't out for justice. He is searching for vengeance, and he will not rest until he has it. In High Noon, Gary Cooper is just looking for some help. Anyone who will stand with him against the arriving gunslingers on the 12 o'clock train. In Django Unchained, Django is searching for his wife, attempting to free her from slavery. In Unforgiven, the greatest Western of all time, in my opinion, Clint Eastwood is in search of redemption from his past sins. And then there is this, 1956 showpiece by John Ford, The Searchers. You're welcome over there. It stars John Wayne as Ethan Edwards come home to Texas, of course, after being gone for eight years and having fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. He is bitter. He is mean. He is a killer. He is a racist. The Comanche attack and kill his brother and his family, abducting Ethan's eight-year-old niece, Debbie, 
At least we are told it's his niece. I rewatched the movie last week, and there is an obvious but unspoken romance going on between Ethan and his sister-in-law. Go back and watch the movie. And given that Ethan has been gone for eight years and shows back up and this little girl is eight years old, I would say that he is trying to find his daughter, not his niece. Anyway, he shoots and stabs his way through the stunning Monument Valley south of Moab, Utah, and ultimately brings that little girl home. John Wayne also brought the searchers into the Library of Congress as the greatest Western of all time, they said. And he brought a gift to Buddy Holly, the early rock and roller as well. In the movie, just about every time someone tells John Wayne something that he doesn't like, or they tell him that they're going to whip him, or they tell him that they're going to get the best of him, he responds with a single line. Does anyone know it? He says, That'll be the day. Just like that. Let's all try that. That'll be the day. Well, Buddy Holly was in a Lubbock, Texas theater on the weekend of 1956 when the movie came out, and he heard the line so many times that he borrowed that line and the very next day wrote his first number one song, That'll Be the Day. So here come these searchers. For simplicity's sake, I'll agree with John Henry Hopkins Jr. and say that there are three. Western tradition, that is Western Christianity, not the Wild West, about 500 A.D. gave the Magi names, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. And if you ask me, that doesn't sound like any cowboys I have ever heard of. So let's go with these three guys, and let's call them Cass, Mel, and Boz. Now, Now we're getting somewhere, and so are they. They rode out of Philadelphia just as quickly as Cash finished his calculations. His grandparents had been Romani. They were put down as gypsies, fortune tellers. His parents had found work in the circuses outside of New York, New Jersey, reading palms, dealing cards. Cash had joined the army instead was a scout during the Civil War. He knew how to read the stars. He had an almost supernatural instinct. He was in tune with the mysteries of nature around him. Mel and Boz, they came from the same sort of background. Each of them felt that God spoke to them in their dreams, that more was going on in the world than met the eye, and their dreams of light had been turbulent. Utopian dreams mixed with apocalyptic nightmares, a newborn baby born somewhere out on the frontier, a grasping, gasping, trembling old man with murder in his eyes. Cass tells his friends one morning over breakfast at a cafe on Market Street there in Philadelphia, it's Fort Smith, Arkansas. I'm leaving tomorrow. It wasn't an order, but all three men packed their bags the same. Saddlebags on fresh horses, sleeping rolls, a stop at the bank to pull from their safe deposit boxes every penny that they had, Winchester lever-action rifles in their cases, and west they ride. Well, south first. Down the old wagon road they come, following the Shenandoah Valley. They turn westward through and toward the Cumberland Gap, Bristol, on to Nashville, a stop at Spencer's Rock and a thunderstorm that threatened to drown all three of them and their horses, Four nights at Kenner Tavern, a sudden late spring blizzard, flat rock. 
They bypassed Jackson, a hotbed of Klan activity after the war, having all served in the Union Army, and they wanted no part of that. They had planned to rest in Memphis. On arrival, a malaria outbreak was ravaging the town. Thousands had left the city in panic for New Orleans, for, New, for St. Louis. Mel wanted to turn back there, thinking that his apocalyptic dreams were going to come true. But they found a porter to take them across the Mississippi and westward still into the Arkansas Territory. Four months now on horseback. It was July, blistering hot. The river bottom lands of eastern Arkansas seemed to never end. Every night they dreamed the same squirming baby, the same old brittle man. And every night Cass would read the stars, make notes in his diary, say his prayers, and assure his companions that they were heading in the right direction. They rode along the Arkansas River, arriving in Fort Smith on the first day of August, humidity as thick as a hair shirt. Saloons on every corner, brothels above every saloon, outlaws, refugees, veterans of the Mexican and Civil Wars, officers in charge of Indian removal, a great scaffold, the hanging gallows in front of the courthouse, a slew of men waiting in the morning sun to be strung up, waiting on their executioners to finish their breakfast. All eyes in the town turned to take in these three strangers. Strange indeed, city boys from way back east. They tie their horses. They walk into the courthouse proclaiming their mystic intentions, looking for some wild-born child who will rule the entire western territory and bring peace to such a violent and an undone land. Judge Isaac Parker steps from his office when he hears them talking out front. Cass, Mel, and Boz freeze. It is the man of their nightmares. How might I help you boys today, he asked, with more than a little suspicion. 200 deputy U.S. marshals at his command, Parker was known all over the West as the hanging judge, and he alone sent more men and women to their deaths than any other single judge in American history. These cowboys had every reason to be careful. So I hear you're looking for some Indian baby with what the Choctaw call big medicine. Well, we hear about that sort of thing from time to time, though no white man has ever come this far looking for such. Hmm. Sarah, get the census records, the judge says to an assistant, and she goes running. Some months back, maybe a year or so now, I think that some Cherokee stragglers from North Carolina passed through on their way into Indian territory. Sarah, Sarah, what was it they were going to and where were they headed? She looks it up and she says, sir, it looks like they settled up in Tahlequah across the river in Oklahoma. He strokes his silver beard. He says, that seems about right. And then the judge draws close to the three strangers, close enough for them to see the coat revolver inside his suit vest right beside his pocket watch. You boys skedaddle on off to Tahlequah. It's an easy ride. With fresh horses, you can be there in three days. So here, the judge reaches in his pocket for a stack of $100 bills. You take this to the livery. You tell them I sent you, and they'll have you set with new horses and tack in no time. They'll send you for a hot bath and breakfast, too, as it sure seems you boys haven't had a wash behind the ears in some time. 
Maybe you could get a room in one of the local boarding houses, spend the night. At least stay for the hanging. No one should ever miss a good hanging. And as Bob, Boz reaches for the greenbacks, Cash stops him and says, No, sir, I reckon our horses are fresh enough and we'll be moving on. And the dusty strangers return to their saddles. They mount and ride north to Tahlequah, an uneasy look over their shoulders the whole way. Now, I have not pushed this story too far. I have only relocated it. Magi, Persians, Herod the Great, people we don't know and places we have never been. But I drove across eastern Arkansas a few days ago. I rolled into Fort Smith, was made aware of its history and that of Isaac Parker. I crossed over into Indian Territory, the Cherokee and the Choctaw Nations. I drove all the way to Tulsa. It's 900 miles, 14 hours in a car at 70 miles an hour. And I had saddle sores. I felt like my back was going to break in two, that my shoulders would never come unknotted. I knew what I was doing and knew where I was going, linking up with one of those Wahoo sons of mine. But what about perfect strangers crossing those same prairies and river bottoms and mesas and swamplands? Yea, John Henry Hopkins, we traverse a far field and fountain, moor and mountain following yonder star. But it was just a star. These guys sat out on a hunch. It was a roll of the dice. If you go chasing lights in the night sky, you won't be taken seriously for very long today. You will get labeled as one of those people, obsessed with UFOs and alien sightings and Area 51 and the Book of Enoch or whatever else. But at the time of these magi, there were already a couple of well-established astronomical events that foretold of so-called divinity or divine activity. Alexander the Great, the most prolific and powerful general to ever live, was born with the sun in the constellation of Leo, a conquering lion. And his mother had a dream on the night that he was born of lightning striking her womb. Upon his death, he was deified. And the pronouns and all the written records about him were changed to theos. He was not a man. He was a god. And just a few years before Jesus was born, at the funeral of Julius Caesar, a comet appeared in the sky for seven days. And Augustus, Caesar's adopted son, jumped up on the funeral dais and pointing at the comet declared the ascension of Julius to the heavens that Julius was now a god, not a man. And it worked out pretty well for Augustus too because he became the son of God on earth. The parallels in these stories cannot be ignored. But the chief difference between these stories cannot be ignored either. All the rulers and power brokers were elevated as gods upon their deaths after using their lives as blunt, manipulative, violent tools of war, forcing others to bow before them. This baby in Bethlehem has not ascended. He has descended. He isn't attempting to make himself great, but to become small. He is not manipulative or violent or demanding. He simply is. Jesus does not coerce. He invites. 
Jesus does not force, he intrigues. Jesus does not bluster and rant, he opens his heart and opens his arms. Jesus comes down, meeting people where they are, not requiring that others get down and grovel to him. And there is something in that kind of invitation, something in this light-bringing, light-bearing child that doesn't make people crawl, it makes them explore. It draws them from every corner of the world and does what no empire or paranoid king or swaggering threat can ever do. He actually has the power to bring searchers home. For he is both the way and the destination. He is the road and the arrival. He is the voice that calls us and the voice that answers us. He is the thirst within us and he is the water that satisfies that thirst. He is the source of our hunger and the satisfaction for our hunger. He is the light in the distance and the light shining down on us. He is the unexpected discovery that we find in the most ordinary of places. He is the wonder in our wanderings in the end to all of our searching.